0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Wind Your Neck and I'm your host Niall Annett and this week we have a very insightful episode into one of the top Head of Performance Managers in Europe and his journey to where he is now as Head of Performance at Saracen's Rugby Club. This week's episode is sponsored by VVS, last week's episode sponsored giveaway was won by Ash Toy on Instagram who won a free VVS belt, congrats on that. The highest quality leather given away for free just for interacting and following on social media platforms. They are good deals, VVS crew. If you want to have a look at some more of the cool gear they have to offer, you can find them on Instagram at Van Smith, or even better, have a look through their website at www.vvsleather.co.uk to see all the awesome bits they have available. My favourite pair, personally, are the Harlowstone boots, which I bought a year ago, along with the shoe protector kit, and even though I've worn them for many a night of eating and a couple of beers, there are still no stains or marks on them, and that's the sign of a decent pair of boots. Follow and message the guys at VVS for more info, and as always, we hope you guys enjoy the episode. Okay, hello and welcome to Wind Your Neck In, and it's my pleasure to be able to welcome the current head of performance at Saracens and fellow Ulster man, Philip Morrow, to the show today. Phil, thanks very much for taking the time to jump on and have a chat with us. Thanks
1: very much for having me, looking
0: forward to it. The first guest we've had, um, Ulster-based, Belfast-based, so we were just laughing about it off before we started there. Hopefully people can actually understand what we're saying, but I suppose appropriate to ask the question at this time, you know, how's self-isolation or quarantine treating you, you, Julian, the two wee men, are you just keeping busy and keeping well?
1: Yeah, it's been actually quite enjoyable in part, although it's been a tough time for a lot of people. For me personally, at home with the family, it's been great to spend a bit more time than you normally do. Julie works from home anyway. She, she works for a Belfast company still. Um, so she's probably enjoyed mostly having us around. And the two boys have been very busy with school. So actually my younger one just started back. He was year six. So he's one of the group that started back this, this week. So uh, he got a bit of teasing from his brother
0: yeah no doubt and you were telling me when we touched base beforehand that you're keeping the wee men fit and running loads of energy off for sure
1: yeah both the boys actually are sport mad academically they're okay but they're both sport crazy so yeah i take them for a we'll call it a PU lesson every day at four o'clock and they both enjoy it it's it's not me shouting at them or making them do it they, they both enjoy training so it's uh, it's good fun actually
0: yeah, it's been class with the weather as well. I'm sure they're absolutely loving it. And I think off the bat, only appropriate that we kind of discuss the actual title and phrase for this podcast, because a lot of people who've come on having a Scooby is what it means. But in your formative years, were you ever told to wind your neck in?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of times, my friends, parents, uncles and school teachers. Yeah, it's um, I actually didn't realize it was a Belfast thing. And then until I came over and I said it to someone, I just met that blank face. Going,
0: yeah. What? Are you insulting me or do <laughs> I need what what do you want me to do? Yeah, very good. Um, one of the things I was looking to touch on quickly because we're gonna discuss we're gonna discuss it hopefully in a bit more detail later. But obviously, as you role, Saris as head of performance, you're probably trying to juggle roughly somewhere anywhere between thirty to fifty players at the moment. Is that taking up a lot of your time?
1: Yeah. And I must say, we're dead lucky at Saris to have some great staff there as well. So they do a lot of it and take a lot off my plate. It's been a a strange period, I would say. I don't think anyone's ever went through something like this. Different than off-season where you want the lads to have a break and you know there's going to be a definite plan when they come back to to build up before there's fixtures. There's been so much uncertainty around when we're going to to do anything, when games might begin... So that made it a bit more challenging. And actually for players who they are generally used to structure, so they're, they're told what time to come in at, what to wear, what time the training session is at. I think some of them probably find it difficult with the uncertainty around what's happening, um, like, like most people, to be fair. And then I suppose with the uncertainty around sport, it adds to the anxiety. But yeah, it's it's been busy enough keeping in touch with the players, but it's actually good to catch up, isn't it? I'll be glad to catch up with them face-to-face. Zoom's been brilliant, but you can probably get a bit sick of it after a time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're stuck chatting to me every week on, on a screen. Um, I think one of the things that we discussed previously on, on last week's episode with Pat Lamb was the absolute desperate need for us in our profession for routine. So we get handed a schedule, you know, sometimes on a four week basis, telling us where to be, what to do, what we need to wear. So the lack of routine for in, in our specific jobs um, as rugby in a rugby environment is quite difficult have you been suggesting any sort of ways in which the players can keep that routine or try and structure their training
1: yeah I think players will inevitably default to find a routine no matter what situation they're in I I know I was the same with my family it was we get up at this time and we do this and then we'll go to the gym here and I think people will naturally try and find that if if they're used to it and the players have been the same, I think most of them still get up early; they all do their own individual training wherever they do it, and then they spend the afternoon with their families or doing their extracurricular work that that, that, that they do so yeah, we've guided them as best we can while the, 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 all our all our lads are on furlough at the moment, so we 've guided them as best we can to make sure um, They're not left out in the limb, but they've got an idea of what
0: to do and when to do it. Absolutely. I think it's crucial. So the plan is we're going to spend the first half of the chat kind of bringing some context and talking through your career from more or less start to finish. And and then after that, we're going to touch on some themes that I'm quite interested in throughout the the stage of your career. So if you're happy, we're going to go back to the beginning because you're born in... (laughs) <laughs> as far back as you want to go. <laughs> and you can you can let on and say whatever you want to say. But in your, in your infancy, born and raised in Belfast, went to Grosvenor Grammar School, the first thing I'd like to touch on is how sport influenced you as a kid. You must have had a real passion for it growing up. Yeah,
1: I actually have really early memory. Although neither of my parents were particularly sporty, I have really early memories of going out running with my dad. So I remember once... We used to always do this four mile route and there used to be these charity runs you used to do. Um,
0: and there was the a fun old, run. Yeah, the old fun run, yeah. Oh, May. It was on May, what, early May, wasn't it? Because I used That's to do it exactly my family. Yeah.
1: And um, there was, a, I think it was an alcohol free beer called Calibre. And there was a Calibre 6K. I must have been only 10 at the time. And my dad said, let's, let's do the 6K. And I remember the first time I tried to up my miles and I got a stitch, and we're running down a main road in Belfast, called the Belmont Road. And I went to stop, and my dad dragged me up the side street, <laughs> going, don't embarrass yourself by stopping, like people can see you. But maybe that was like the start of some seed that got planted in me. But all through primary school, I was always sport crazy, played rugby, football and hockey at school. And then probably a bit of luck, um, hockey became my main sport. There was a guy, Ronnie Smith, who wants to saw a bit of potential in me as a hockey player. And he asked me to join Anadale Hockey Club. So at the time I was like, yeah, OK, you're 11 years old and you get to play sport. Um, so I said that, that was sort of the start of structured sport for me. And I took hockey pretty seriously and um, I did OK at it um, through my teenage years. So yeah, that, that, was, that was the start of it. I was always injured. Um, as, a, as a as a young player, I think I've had over 20 broken bones. Some of them, at the same time, so I broke my leg in three places, so I counted as three bones. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll say three to 20 breaks. Um, so I was always injured a lot, which I found dead frustrating and missing out in sport. And again, maybe that triggered something in me. But I wasn't particularly talented. Uh, even as a hockey player, I would, would have prided myself on wanting to be the fittest. Um, I definitely wasn't as skillful, but even from a young age, I thought to myself, that if there was ever a fitness session, I'm going to win it. Probably that's where it, it, it started in terms of my love for fitness and training.
0: Well, obviously growing up in Belfast during a pretty turbulent time was sport almost like something that can just get you away from getting yourself in any trouble
1: yeah so so um i didn't drink through my teenage years and people always ask me why did i not drink and start drinking because i had a group of friends who who did and um, we probably were a typical bunch of teenagers at that point in belfast where i live getting up to mischief and getting ourselves into trouble but but i never started to drink and i remember Probably underage drinking with my friends underage drinking and, and uh, me never starting. I don't know whether it was because of my hockey. I, I can't really remember a decision in my head, but I didn't start. But I just loved training. I loved running. I, loved, um, I had a friend who was going to join the Marines. So we used to go to the leisure centre and do basically press ups and chins constantly because that was what he was going to get assessed on. So, so the sport bit, all my closest friends didn't really play sport. So I had like hockey friends who they were the guys I'd played sport with. But the rest of the time my mates weren't necessarily sporty. So it probably did give me an opportunity to not go out on a Friday night because I knew we'd had a match on Saturday and I took that all pretty seriously. And then because I didn't drink I might not have went out on the Saturday night as well because I was too tired. So, but, but I can't remember being a conscious choice. It just seemed to be one of those things that, that, that happened.
0: Yeah, I think it's indicative of someone who's trying to Perform at a high level that you make those sacrifices, and fair play to you because it's not easy to do when you're a teenager the elements of peer pressure and stuff that come into it. But I suppose, so from that early age, now that we know what you've gone on to achieve and what role you're in now, those early years there was clearly a real interest in strength and conditioning or performance or training, whatever way you want to call it. So, can you talk us through the kind of early stages of how you went through to become qualified and that sort of thing? Because I know you finished off at the University of Ulster doing um, a degree or a master's actually but what were the early stages of you trying to form that career
1: yeah well strength and conditioning didn't really exist you're going back to when i was picking a levels 1993 so it wouldn't have really been a career choice you wouldn't think oh i'm gonna i'm gonna be that there wasn't even professional sport really rugby hadn't turned professional
0: yeah 95
1: Uh, yeah so so i wanted to be an engineer from my fifth year um, so work placement i did at a civil engineering company i was really good at maths at school goodness knows why terrible at English, <laughs> terrible at spelling terrible at any sort of writing subjects but was really good at maths and physics so actually coming out of university i was going to study maths and statistics um at Jordanstown time at university of ulster and about a week before the, the course started ronnie smith the hockey coach we were having a chat and he said to me, you know, why don't you go and do sports studies and you may be thinking of being a PE teacher, you know, you like sport and blah. So I rang a guy, Billy Ingram, who Ronnie knew and said, is there any chance of me getting into the course? And I went and got interviewed and they let me start the degree in sports studies, it was called then. But still with no real vision of what I wanted to be or do, as I said, there wasn't really professional sport. At that point, I was thinking I could be a PE teacher because it looked like a pretty cushy job, to be honest. In terms of what they did, um, so when I finished it, it was a three year course, I didn't take the placement option. I had met my wife, my like girlfriend, then obviously. So I, I, I took a year out and worked in a gym, um, in the Shankill Leisure Center in Belfast, and I actually had a, a great time doing it, to be honest. It was, uh, it was sort of my first. Job and I had an opportunity to train and um, I started to think about training probably a bit more on the back of some of the things I'd picked up in my degree and then after that year I was thinking to myself what am I going to do now like I can't. so I genuinely was 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 going to apply for a job to become like assistant manager of the leisure centre and my wife was going back to do her final year in electronic engineering. So she was studying at Jordanstown and there was an opportunity um, to go back and do a master's uh, and because I wasn't from a particularly wealthy family, I got funding. I got this European social fund that paid for my master's and gave me a hundred pounds a week to go back and study. And I thought, this is okay. So I went back into the master's in physiology. So exercise physiology. Because again, strength addition didn't exist. There wasn't a course to study. But again, after, I actually worked hard on that. I would say that was the change. Julie uh, moved in with me and my parents at that point, and she took her study seriously, and I started to study a bit more seriously. And that was a big change in both our lives, really, in terms of thinking, it's quite a long way left in my life. I need need to do a bit of work here. So yeah, I went back and did the master's, but after it, no idea what I was going to do. I did okay my master's, and then thought, well, maybe I'll do a PhD. I could become a lecturer. I was working in a, in a fitness first. The fitness first still exists. The gyms.
0: Yeah, down um, at the old movie house cinemas, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Just as a, as a gym instructor, personal training, because I said I loved the training side of it. And there was a job in the paper, which was for it might have been called a fitness a fitness trainer for the Irish Rugby Union. So Julie picked me up from work. We were sharing a car at the time, and she said. Um, did you see the job with the, with the rugby in the paper? Would that not be something? And I was going, oh, it'll be jobs for the boys. Um, just because that was my view on it. And while I was um, basically cleaning toilets and, and cleaning out the jacuzzi in the gym, she wrote my CV up in the, in the computer down in the fitness room and sent it off. No way. And I ended up, I got a letter. It was <laughs> you had the post things. You know, there's this thing called post. <laughs> you, know, you get a letter. Posted back to you um, with a stamp and
0: all, yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> I got this letter through the post going, and it was marked the Irish Rugby Union, and it opened it up, being invited for an interview. Um, so there was a fair bit of luck in terms of that first step.
0: So how does that tie in in with two thousand and three? Is that the job that she? Did they used to go through the RFU to go to get the jobs at the provinces? Because in two thousand and three, you move into rugby and you start to work with Ulster.
1: Yeah. So no, this was 2000 and probably 2000 and 2001, I started the job. So basically the Irish Rugby Union had decided that the fitness was a huge issue and they employed this, well, my mentor and friend and the guy that gave me opportunity, a guy called Liam Hennessy, a brilliant man, um, unbelievably bright, unbelievably intelligent, but a great person as well. And he decided that he was going to... Can't make too much of a change to the upper, the older players, but we'll start young and we'll put this program in place where we're going to develop the youth and they're going to come through with the right um, tools to help Irish rugby. So he employed a guy called Aidan O'Connell and myself. and I think it was called the National Academy mm. um, back in 2001. So he would have had players like, I'm trying to think who the players were. It would have been maybe like Jamie Heaslet just coming out of school. That, that okay. era of player. So that was the start of me doing it. Um, and I happened to be based in Ulster. And at that point, you would have had like Rory Best's, um, Neil McMillan's, Matt McCulloch's, Brian Young's, all those players who were just finished school and they were first year and could put into this National Academy program. Yeah. So I did that from 2001 till maybe a year and a half, 2002, um, halfway through 2002. And at Ulster at the time, Alan Solomon's, who you'll know well,
0: I do. Um,
1: was the uh, was the head coach director of rugby, and he had a guy that worked with him for a few years called Phil Mack, who, uh, who I knew because I was based at Ulster as well. And Phil had got a job, I think, with the Brumbies in Australia, and it was a good opportunity for him. So I got a phone call from Mike Reid, who was the CEO at the time of Ulster Rugby, who said, could I meet you?" And I was yeah, like, "Okay." So I pulled up to this petrol station in a place called um, Temple between Belfast and, and um, Hinge. And he didn't get out of his car. <laughs> he basically said, listen, Phil maxley leaving. Solly wants you to do it. Do you want to do it? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically how I got that job. So I was what, 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 maybe only 25 at the time. And didn't really know what I was doing. Like, generally, had no idea what I was doing. I had lots of enthusiasm. Um, a general knowledge about training and, and, and sort of from my own experiences. But didn't really know how to structure a program or look at a season. Or, or, and I could throw it into the deep end. And back then, there wasn't a, an army of staff. It was basically Solly, his two assistant coaches, Mark McCall, who was the analyst, uh, gg the physio and me the the fitness coach the snc coach and basically i had to do everything so and Solly was um i'm not sure what Solly's like now but he was a well he's, he was a brilliant man firstly so I put this in context but he was he, he had high standards and he wanted things done properly absolutely um he was hugely passionate about fitness and conditioning so actually from that side, it was brilliant because I had a coach who actually believed in the conditioning side. So you're supported from that side. But you needed to be on it. And if you weren't on it, he was going to ask you why you weren't on it. So all of a sudden you learn very quickly that well, you've got to be prepared. If you're going to take a session, you are got to be prepared because if you're not, the coach is going to scream at you. And we had a bunch of players who were all older than me they're going to take the piss out of you. So very quickly, you make sure you go turn up the sessions being prepared.
0: Yeah, you had yeah. to make sure that you, well, you were prepared enough that you had credibility with the coaches and the players. Very, very
1: much so, because if you, if you know yourself now. If you go to a session and the coach doesn't seem organized, the probability is you're not going to get everything to the session. You're going to be thinking this is shit. Yeah. So I, I sort of started with the premise that we're going to work hard because that was sort of all I knew growing up and what my parents instilled in me. So sessions were tough, I would say. Maybe not hugely based in science, but they were tough. But all of a sudden, I don't know, I find rugby players, they've got great attitudes to hard work. And actually, the harder the work, the better the feel. Uh, yeah. Even though they might hate you in the moment, I think they've all got a great work ethic. So uh, I was just really lucky again and that we had... All those young players I mentioned, so when you went through the, the, the team, you had Brian Young, who, who was a young loose head. You had Rory Best, who, who was a very young hooker at the time. His brother Simon was the tight head. Matt McCulloch was a really young second row. You had Neil McMillan, who was a real talented back row at the time. Um, and Neil Best, who had plucked from um, obscurity, really, playing club rugby. Wellington, um, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, a guy, Stephen Ferris, who, who was just out of school. Um, Isaac Boss, David Humphreys was there, and then you'd got a few talented backs and Andrew Trimble, Tommy Bowe, and people like that. I would say I was lucky with the group of players that, that I got as well. We ended up winning the league with Ulster with this young group in two thousand
0: six. Two thousand five, two thousand
1: six season, yeah. Yeah. And that was really special because those young players I had known from the National Academy and, and sort of yeah. growing up a bit with them.
0: I'm interested to know, Phil, whenever that transition comes, because we're going to cover some of the details of, of being at Ulster, hopefully a bit later on, You know, that transition from when you were at Ulster in that role of head of S&C to then transitioning to an even more senior and important role on a, on a global scale of looking after the Irish rugby football unions, fit, uh, fitness and conditioning. How did that come about? And, and what sort of workload did you take on at that stage? Because I know your role kind of transformed halfway through. Yeah,
1: um, so in 2007, uh, Alan Clark, who was the forwards coach at Ulster while I was there, was the high performance manager for the Irish Union. And Liam Hennessy, um, the guy I mentioned, was still there as the director of fitness. Um, and they had asked me to leave Ulster and to come back and work at the pathways in Ireland um, to basically try and put some fitness structures in place really focusing on 18 to 23-year-olds and, and how that could be done better. And I'd always had a huge passion for player development because of the way it worked in Ulster. And again, that might have been a bit of luck that drove that passion, but it became important to me that actually seeing a young player fulfil his potential was as rewarding as winning something for me. Like when, when Andrew Trimble or Tommy Bow played for Ireland, in a bizarre way, it gave me as much as when we won the league with Ulster just because I'd known them since they were 17, 16, 17 yep. at school. And it might have just been a small part, but you had an opportunity to work with them. So that, 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 that was important to me. And Liam had this vision again to take the experienced trainers in the provinces and put them in the pathways. So Des Ryan, who's now the head of medicine and science at Arsenal Academy, he was the conic trainer. And he came back as a coach educator and worked with the under-18s. And they put me with the over-18s as part of that pathway. So that year would have been Peter Romani's and Conor Murray's and and, and that group of players. And that's interesting
0: because we met at that kind of group where you were looking after that Irish under-20s team that went to Argentina forgot to say and Niall yeah English yeah I <laughs> mean in, in the same group with Peter Romani and Cara Murray no doubt Yeah, Nat no but that so it's interesting because you obviously I, I remember you coming on that that World Cup and the build up to it and stuff and you didn't want to mess about you wanted to make sure you got your work done whenever you were about and, and make sure you were looking after yourself but the passion to make sure that we were successful was always evident
1: I, I'm not sure where my competitiveness comes from whether it's in people or whether it came from but I, I would Probably people that know me would know that I'm pretty competitive and quite emotional, to be honest. I, I, I can And that spills over at times. and It definitely did spill over more when I was younger. But yeah, as soon as I started to work with those young lads, they're the players you work with and you want them to be successful because you've got a vested interest in them and you you, you care about them and, and uh, it becomes important to you. I did that for a couple of years, actually, and it was a good group. And then I find it really difficult when I reflected on it. So after about a year and a half in, I find being away from the day to day of club rugby phenomenally difficult. I don't know if I knew that about myself at the time, but I figured it out during that period. Or actually, just being by myself and not having interaction every day, I find it really tough mentally. Um, and there times where I'm driving across Ireland by myself in the car really struggling to be honest because I'm thinking I'm not really enjoying this and it was a great job on paper and I loved the times we were in camp and and, and got satisfaction with the players but actually the day-to-day was, was, was difficult. So I was actually going to go back and work I applied for a job in New Zealand uh, with Julian I started to look for schools because we were talking about having kids at the time and I, 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 I was basically looking for a job back in the day-to-day and Lane had moved on from the IRFU. R- R- he had some health issues at the time and, and, and left the IRFU. And I was asked, Would I apply for his position as the, the head of fitness? And I was really torn at the time because I sort of ha- had my mind made up, now I'm going to go back and work this day to day. And this was almost even more strategic and removed mm. um, at, at that moment. Anyway, I went for the job and I, I was lucky enough to get. The job, and it's funny how these sliding doors happen. It turned out to be an amazing experience and taught me a lot around myself about how to manage my own time, about how to think a bit more strategically, how to manage staff, um, which I never had to do. It was just working with players, so it became actually a brilliant learning experience, which which has helped me now. Because a lot of that was trying to work with the staff on the ground who were working with the players opposed to you working with the players directly. So I I, I managed to get some good skills there, I think, um, which have been good for me uh, moving forward. And then it would have been 2010, Declan Kidney was the the head coach of the Irish team. And he basically asked me, um, would I double job? Would I do the head of fitness and um, help prepare the national team for the lead into the World Cup in 2011 in New Zealand? So it wasn't really a difficult question. Dan, should to be honest? It was like no, oh,
0: yeah, that, that's
1: a, that sounds like good, good crack.
0: You can't say no to being given the opportunity to prepare a team for a senior World Cup. That that like in your line of work, Phil, that must have been such an exciting opportunity.
1: I, I still say when I talk to my, my friends here, sorry, the staff, the World Cup preps. They'll probably be my Uh, most enjoyable period professionally Um, in terms of you get a group of players together who are phenomenally motivated because there's a world cup we had some great players in that team actually great players even globally not just not just in Ireland Mm -hmm. and so they're all unbelievably motivated you actually get time so one like a Lions tour where you get thrown together and there's a game four days later you get 10 weeks to plan and try and build up your prep. So I find it phenomenally enjoyable. I find the whole World Cup actually phenomenally enjoyable. I knew I was leaving at that point to come to the Sarcens.
0: It's probably important to say at that stage that before the World Cup, you'd been approached by... You're the person you'd worked with years before from Saracens, Mark McCall, to go to that job. But a man of your word, you stayed at the RFU and you said, I'll see out this World Cup period. Because you would put all that effort in and you wanted to see through what you said you would do. But you knew in the knowledge afterwards that you were going to be moving on.
1: Yeah. The, the truth is, I don't know if I really wanted to leave, personally. I actually love the job and I love working with Declan and I love working with the players. Julia will kill me for saying this. Um, <laughs> But well, I still remember driving up. We just played France in the Six Nations. So February, March, I, I can't remember exactly. And she said, we we'd just had a second child, Daniel. And um, life was great for me. I'm working in the Six Nations. I, I'm, I've got an office in Dublin. I'm, I'm I'm unbelievably busy. I've sort of got this dream job that I always wanted. And um, so life was pretty good. Also, like you arrive up and you get fed and your clothes are washed. And you know, life's pretty good and she, she just said to me like, are you, are you happy what are we doing and I was a bit sort of taken aback going well, yeah and she and basically she was working full time as an engineer with two young kids who effectively put in the crash at 7 o'clock in the morning and picked them up at 6 o'clock at night and she was going is this really what we want for us and our family I would have been away goodness knows 250 nights a year probably when you added it all up so Mark had always kept in touch with me. He had he moved to Saracens in 2009, so he had always kept in touch. And then Brendan Venter had moved on in, in the January of that year, um, and Mark had taken over as the director of rugby. And he he had called me previous about, you know, would I be interested? And I was like, no, I'm doing okay here. And then after that, I rang him and said, listen, if anything comes up there, I think probably for the family, come back to club rugby would be um, something I would do. And that was sort of it. Edward Griffiths then, who was the seal at the time, literally rang me the next day in the car going, okay, let's make this work. When can you offer? And it was all a bit, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it was sort of a thought, not it's reality.
0: It's no, um, not it how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, he doesn't work in half measures. He he wants it done and he gets it done. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that, 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 that so, but I did say, listen, I'm not going to come if you want me to come now. I said, I, I've, Put a plan in place for World Cup. We can work with these coaches. For me to walk out, what was five months before a World Cup, just wouldn't have sat with well with me. Both in terms of the team, but also from a selfish perspective, it was something I was looking forward to. So I, I'm not like I'm painting myself as holier than I. But there was a selfish agenda to do it too. So yeah, after the World Cup, as I say, it was was a painful end, but a phenomenal experience. Uh, we we lost to Wales. I can't it was the Saturday or Sunday and effectively we flew back, we landed in the UK on Tuesday, and everyone else was getting a flight on to Dublin and I just got the train up to um, St Albans. My wife and kids had already moved over because they had started school in the September. And went into Saris and on the Wednesday, started the next day. I've been there ever since. So
0: that Saracen's experience is is something that probably when you look back at where you when you arrived to that club, what you the you and the club um, have gone on to succeed and have success with? Probably, did you believe that that's what was possible? Is that what was pitched to you? Or
1: Yeah, it, I almost left after two months. Wow, so why? I don't know how many people have ever told that.
0: Um, this, is a, this is a podcast platform Phil <laughs> it's probably not the time to decide you're going to I, tell everybody I,
1: I, I, I had told Mark and, and told a few friends but I, I don't know if I've ever made it public
0: um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, when I'm but, editing this I'll, I'll make sure I give you the option to take uh, it out or leave I, it in
1: it, it's, it's, not, it's not bad but I, I'd moved over so I'd worked with a bunch of Irish players i known most of them for 11 years a lot of them I would have considered good friends and when I moved to um, to Saris there was an SNC coach there who would have been friendly, very friendly with the players and uh, a high performance manager who would have been there for a while and, and very friendly with everyone as well. And I was sort of small as made. I, 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 actually, my sports scientist and I, who was an intern then, um, jokes that when I arrived in and started to talk to people, he was thinking, this guy's pretty confident for a visitor because he didn't know who I was. Wow. This was the first day. But when I arrived, there's no desk. I had nowhere to sit because the facility's pretty rubbish. Nothing had been organised, no laptop, no desk. And I've arrived to work and no one really knew who it was. Um, they just won the Premiership. So they won the Premiership the year before. So they're the makings of a good side. And I was like, I would say, felt like a little bit of an <laughs> outcast. Although they were amazing and, and Julie made friends like that and became godparent to one of their, the, the players' um, kids and They were brilliant at looking after you. But just from a personal perspective, I found it difficult because I had no relationships with the players. They didn't know me. They didn't know what I'd done before. And I was almost like, shit, I need to prove myself here again. Mm. So I found it really difficult at the time. And it took, I would say, four months before I felt more comfortable. Like Declan had come over basically to say, do you want to come back? And I I remember having the conversation with Julie saying, you know, what do you think? And she's going, I've moved over here with two kids, put her kids in a new school, we're not going back. So she was probably right again. <laughs> uh, but they did have this vision as, as a club where, I know they didn't really, t- they never actually talked about winning, um, I suppose, with my personality I w- and talking to Mark. Growing up in Ireland, the European Cup's everything. Like The European Cup is the biggest thing and I sort of saying, like, just, do you reckon we've got a chance and Smalley obviously had sold it that, you know, we've got a good squad here and we're going to compete in Europe and, and that sort of became this goal, right? We want to, we want to win Europe. I remember getting asked by, by the owner, you know, how long do you think it'll take before we can compete with these French sides? And so it became a big goal to try and conquer Europe. That, that became the, the ambition
0: yeah absolutely and I think if we if we fast forward slightly all that success that you had at Saris was also i suppose pers- on a personal level there was an element of justification on what you put together with a couple of things, mostly you know Mark McCall speaks very highly of the work that you did in transforming well along with your staff of course, transforming the physical readiness of the players to compete with some of those big French teams there was multiple occasions I saw all over Google whenever I was bashing Phil Morrow and you never know what's going to come up and then (laughs) at the same time um, you know the, the opportunity to go on a Lions tour came up and I know we've skipped the whole Saracens experience and we will go back to it you have to trust me that that Lions tour must have being, it's the pinnacle for a player Phil you know me you've known me since I was 19 that is the pinnacle for everyone that is where it sits it doesn't sit there emotionally because it's never the same as playing for your country but from in terms of the being the elite of the elite and getting to play with some of the best players in the Great British Isles and and Ireland that must have felt nice when you got that call
1: it was actually really emotional when I, when I got the call initially so I, again I always think generally personal success comes in the back of team success when you yeah. work in sports. So, uh, again, phenomenally lucky that we had a group of these young mm-hmm. players who came through to become very good players. Um, when you when you think of that little group, that Mako had joined the club, as I remember Maco meeting Mako, and he wouldn't have been the fittest guy that I've ever seen, we'll say, um, as, a, <laughs> as a 19, 20-year-old, but he became phenomenal. And then you Jimmy George and Maratoji and George Cruz, who came through the club and their academy. And um, and Owen Farrell again. So all these players who you had watched from a young age become, I suppose, world-class players. That's probably why my name was in the mix. I would say not not because of anything you do, and because the club had been successful. Paul Stridin, who's Warren Gatlin's right-hand man, who, who he worked with in, in Wasps and in Wales for a long time, and Paul had worked with England. So he used to come in and visit the club. So I had a bit of a relationship with him and. A lot of those players who went on to play for England, and we used to keep in contact. And um, he basically sent me a message, just says, are you in? And I, I was like, well, what? And he goes, yeah. and that, that was basically it. So I was phenomenal. I was like a kid. I was like phenomenally excited. I remember ringing Julie and ringing my dad and stuff, because it, like it's really special, isn't it? It's something that, well, actually, when I left Ireland, it was the one thing in my head. Uh, if I gave up the chance that... Uh, work with the Lions so hugely great, grateful for Bobby as everyone calls him and yep. Paul Studgeon and, and Gats for giving me the, the, the chance to do it when I was based at a club and again the experience was it's quite unique the experience it's, it's sort of bizarre it's a bit of a whirlwind for a player to the coaches because you get a bunch of players together and literally you have no prep time none and all of a sudden you're in a country especially the New Zealand one they're pretty good and, and the club sides were <laughs> all pretty good. And uh, they've done a phenomenal job. The coaches at the power of the team to be able to to compete. Actually, from an S&C perspective, it's not really that hard.
0: So I was keen to ask you about that because the perception is that the coaches get given these guys and they have to kind of form a team with this group of players who spend four years kicking the shite out of each other. But from a strength and conditioning point of view, is your job, because you're imagining that these guys who go in the British and Irish lines are probably the top of the top from a physical point of view more times than not as well is your job more so to make sure that they stay there and also the caveat to that is probably to keep them healthy
1: yeah so generally they've come off a long season but we never really talked about that or talked about fatigue we obviously put a plan together as to what the training session should look like and the strength program should look like which was very simplistic in terms of right let's maintain their strength let's make sure they, 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 they are well conditioned so two very simple principles um, and, and Bobby and, and John put the plan together. But actually, the, the big part was just making sure things were organised. So making sure that when players turned up, everything was there. Make sure that the sessions were well organised, well planned. Being an ear for the players, like getting involved in the crack and trying to get the... Because trying to develop team spirits a massive thing. So, I said the coach has done a phenomenal job with that and preparing the team. And, and Bobby and I really just messed about for six weeks, to be honest. I <laughs> had a, bit of a laugh and had a laugh with the players. And um, we made them work hard because working hard together is a good part of building team spirit. But it wasn't hugely technical, it was, it was like, get a bunch of people together and work hard and try and bring them together, that they're all willing to work hard for each other. That, that, that was it. It's just coaches probably deserve more credit because they have to come up with a game plan and get them all um, doing that before test matches start.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a really interesting thing that I was keen to discuss because when you look at these, these Southern Hemisphere teams that we go and we tour with, the British and Irish Lions, I say we as a fan, and when you're looking at that New Zealand team from a physical point of view, Do you and Bobby and John, I think you said it was, do you sit down and do you look at them and do you think where can we attack them from a physical point of view? Can we make sure, you know, the the obvious thing is to say we want to be bigger and faster and stronger than every team we play against. But when you're playing against the Kiwis, there's a reputation that they're probably one of the fittest teams going. So how do you identify any weaknesses that they have from a physical point of view and make sure that they're a strength for you?
1: I suppose I would be really simplistic around S&C in terms of my own philosophies. I don't think it's as complicated as what necessarily it gets portrayed at times. So when it it came to that particular tour, a a lot of it's convincing the players that you're physically as good or better than the opposition. The players have to believe that that they're in great condition. So you can do that through certain ways in terms of the program and, and show improvement in certain markers, which you can change through managing fatigue and by running certain fitness drills that can convince the players that they're in great shape and that they've improved. A lot of it's... That side of it, opposed to looking at an opposition, is convincing the players that they're in great shape and they're good enough to to take these um, these people on, these teams on.
0: Yes, class. I, I think you look at those environments, and they just must be really special to work to work in. And I think if we we've kind of covered the whole very quickly, and I think about thirty minutes, we've covered the whole career that you've been through. And I think it's an interesting one for me because, I mean, I want to know from the very start of when you took over that job at Ulster, the Ulster one I want to focus on specifically because you were working on a day-to-day basis, to where you are now in that British and Irish Lions experience, how big a jump has that strength and conditioning performance environment taken? In some ways,
1: a lot, but in other ways, none. Because effectively, back then, you're trying to get a group of people together Make them work hard that they might improve physical capacity. So that's basically what you're trying to do. You're trying to get someone bigger, faster, stronger. And you're trying to do that by convincing people it's important to them it's going to help them become a better rugby player. So the the basic premise of what we're trying to achieve hasn't changed at all. The, The physical side of it has changed in terms of outputs of players. So they're obviously a lot stronger now than what they were, fitter, faster, although... Um, I I remember talking about this before, I don't necessarily think the top end that much higher. So when I think of like David Wallace who was a back row for Monster in Ireland freak, and um, Stephen Ferris who... Freak. (laughs) So they were termed freaks then. Yeah. Whereas you still had people like it so they were still able to do it. So I think now that those people are just not freaks, it's more normal. I think that's probably the the change. The upper side isn't that much different. Like Stevie would be as good as any athlete that we would have now at Saris or or probably anywhere in terms of his speed and power and strength and his, and his weight. Um and David Wallace was the same. The thing is now you've twenty five of them in your squad and, and and that's the difference. So I think from, from from that side it's different. And then I suppose the level of care is a big aspect that I think Teams do better now because we do have a bit better knowledge around the impact of the game and the impacts of training. um, We can probably um, plan it a bit better. Um, We have got a lot more resource in terms of staff. So whereas it was just me looking after thirty-five players, you could have six people in in a staff, and they're only looking after um, six people each. So therefore, the level of detail and care that you can give that player and and um, I suppose little tweaks that you can make on a daily basis and little adjustments to the program will allow it to be better. And I would say that's the big difference opposed to actually what you're trying to achieve. What we're trying to achieve hasn't really changed.
0: Yeah, I think one of the the perception is that one of the things that has made a big difference is the science in and around the, the what what you do. And I think one of the areas that naturally I thought of and I was thinking about the science involved with it is the. GPS, you know, the the use of GPS and the ability to monitor high speed meters and change of directions and all that sort of stuff. One of the interesting conversations I had with Shirt Lancaster on the podcast was around coaching. So if you put yourself in Mark McCall's shoes, when he's organizing a session, the science should support the art of coaching. So when you're given that that input from a strength and conditioning point of view or a performance point of view to the coaches, how do you allow for that balance to what a coach wants to get out of the session? in the knowledge that the, the game has taken this huge step in terms of GPS?
1: Yeah. My personal view and all that is that I think the arts, the driver, I think the coach is the driver. Ultimately, we're all here to make sure our team performs. Um, so players individually and a team's collective perform on Saturday. So that's the goal. It's not the goal isn't to hit a GPS marker. The goal isn't to hit a, a bench press number. The goal is to try and win a rugby match and make the players be able to fulfill their potential. I think you have to always remember that. Um, I remember talking to, to one of the guys at the club, and it cracks me up when players go and look at their GPS score after. I'm like, well, do you not know if you had a good session or not? Like The GPS isn't mm. telling whether you had a good session or not. You should know whether you had a good session. Go and speak to the coach. Uh, and yes, that's a marker that we use for monitoring and making sure that we're getting what we need from sessions but it shouldn't be your driver. The rugby needs to be the driver. So when I when I talk to the coaches, um, I don't, and not that it's right or wrong, everyone's got their own way of doing things. Um, I don't necessarily say, oh, we want to hit this distance and we want to hit this speed. I, I try to keep it practical and, and sort of system and policy based in terms of, a lighter day and a harder day. And I think if you, if, uh, if you get your system and process right, then you'll hit your GPS markers that, you need, markers that you need. So if you set some constraints around the session or get your session plan right, that's going to help them at rugby and you'll hit your GPS markers opposed to starting the GPS marker hit. Um,
0: and that's the sweet spot.
1: Yeah. And the GP, don't get me wrong, we use the GPS a lot in terms of making sure guys are running fast enough, regular enough in terms of injury prevention to make sure that our training sessions are hitting the intensities and everyone's hitting those intensities to make sure that they're they're continue to develop through the season to make sure that if we have planned a a, a reduced week that we have hit the reduced week um so we do use it as a monitoring tool and a, and a check but it's not the driver of the plan
0: yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely right it, it, my perception of it again from a dopey rugby player is that it's used as a as a as a tool to try and take away any opportunities for a hamstring to go because you haven't hit over 90% or whatever. And I think one of the other things that um, stood out for me was that you've had a, a long career and you've also jumped countries. So one of the interesting topics I was quite keen to, to kind of delve into was the perception that you've worked with a load of Irish players granted at a younger age and at a different time within the, the strength and conditioning timeline or the framework. But Do you see any differences between those English players and those Irish players that you worked with or in the systems that they work? Because I know growing up at that time, there was always a massive physical difference with the English players. They were always, I don't know what they did at a younger age, or it's just because they had a bigger pool of players to choose from. But I'm interested to know, was there any differences in that strength and conditioning system?
1: Comparing what I came from in Ireland to what I um, came to in Saracens, there was differences, but probably not what people would expect. Okay. I do agree that when you looked at the English side, especially back then and not necessarily now, a lot of big um, people, but I do think that was a lot to do with population size and genetics of the population. I think the Irish development programme is a good programme um, and, and has done a great job with the numbers they've got um, to be able to compete. So when I when I came from Ireland over to Saracens, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I think people always look bigger on TV and. So I was surprised when I actually met the squad that I, it wasn't necessarily a big squad, no bigger than what we would have had um, in Ireland. I would say they were very fit, but lacked uh, what I would say leg power or leg strength. The the culture at Saracens at the time, in terms of the, was this real hard work culture, which which is actually still there now. But hard work to them was volume and tough, and maybe not directed. Towards um, developing strength and power or speed. So when I arrived, I was actually surprised at how fit they were. They would have been a lot fitter than than the Ireland players in terms of running the fitness test. But their leg power scores and, and strength I would say was well off. Their upper body strength was was way higher, but their lower body strength and power um, wasn't.
0: I find that really interesting because that's something that I definitely found when I came over here. You know, when I moved made that transition to England, there's like <laughs> the upper body strength is considerably higher than what I remember or have genetically but the lower body strength was something that I never felt like I struggled with is that down to just the type of programs that they're doing or the importance or the way or the style of rugby that you play
1: it's difficult for me to say across the board my experience at Saracens was the way they trained rugby wise and probably their the way they targeted their gym programs again it it, it was successful because they had won the premiership the year before yeah, But I just felt that against the bigger French sides, I think our pack weight back then would have been about 850. And you're playing against French sides, which are well over 900. I just felt that we were a bit light. And it became a real priority to try and get some lean mass on people, um, mainly around their legs. And again, a little bit like Liam did in Ireland back in 2001, I had a group of older players who I thought, am I really going to, Change them too much, although they were brilliant and and they worked hard for me. Yet a couple of 31, 32 year olds, and I'm thinking, Am I really going to start smashing spinal loading on them when they haven't done it and when they're still trying to perform games? And I was conscious that I've came to a new environment, and if you break six people, everyone thinks you're a dick. So I sort of focused on the younger players. A pretty huge focus on, on them and, and tried to convince them that if they can get their leg power up, it's going to make them faster. And if they get their leg power up and their leg strength up, it's going to help them in their carry. And it's good. And I always tried to tie it into how it was going to help them be a rugby player because um, I think that's how you get by in with a player. I would say I was pretty honest with the players in terms of where I thought they were at, and some of them in particular. And some liked me for it and some didn't. But the ones who, who, who did, I think. Uh, really bought into the program and well I, I I hope that we made them we made them better in terms of their, their their rugby
0: yeah so I think the relationship at Saris that that experience at Saris and then it's something I'd like to touch on and the relationship with Mark McCall is something that we have to discuss because he's picked you out and he's brought you over. There's a relationship there. And the aspect of the relationship I'm keen to discuss is the need for someone in that role as the top of the tree, which he eventually you know, became whenever he brought you over, to allow you to do your job along with the rest of your strength and conditioning team. And one of the things Pat talked about last week is the need for someone at the top of the tree to trust the people that they that they employ to do the aspects of the roles. So your head of performance, head of strength and conditioning, or your head of medicine, or your head of performance, they kinda of sit aligned. So your in your experience with Mark, it seems like he allows you to control your aspect of your environment.
1: He's phenomenal
0: to work with. And actually he always
1: has been, even as a young coach. Although we both admit we got some things drastically wrong and sort at the time. But he's phenomenal for me to work with and. In- terms of the trust he's got and he's actually like this with all the staff in terms of um, giving them confidence that he trusts them and for them to do their job well. Like Solly he he wants things to be right and want things to be done right and although he's a quiet man um, he wants things done properly Um, so it'll keep you on your toes but I, I suppose now Our relationship's very strong. Um, As I say, we've worked together for a long, long time now. And I think he trusts if I think something's important enough to say it to him, that he should listen and and we should do it. I couldn't imagine. I listened to to, to people in my position. And it's a constant battle with the coaches they work with. And and it must be hugely exhausting because I would find it difficult. The fact that I've got trust and we put a plan in place and we get backed by basically the person at the top of the tree. And it means all the players will buy into it because he's the guy that ultimately decides where they're going to stay at the club and play. So it definitely helps.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that can't be stressed enough. And it was really interesting for me to hear that because sometimes as a player you can be ignorant to what they describe as like coach alignment, and that means every coach in every a coach in every aspect. So, but one of the other things that I know for a fact strength and conditioners or performance managers are hugely in charge of whenever you're working in an environment like rugby it is something that you mentioned earlier, that's like the culture and the environment. And it's something I know you're brilliant at from having worked with you. And I know it's something you're good at having worked with people who, or know people who've worked with you. So the question sits around how important is a strength and conditioning group in generating that culture and that feel-good atmosphere that a rugby club sits around. Because we all write these values up at the start of every year, and every rugby club does it. And there's about four, five, or three values that go up. But it's my perception, and I would go out there and say it, that it's actually the strength and conditioning staff that are the main drivers for that. Because when they get you in the gym, they can generate positive positivity, hard work, honesty. And they'll probably be three of the things that sit around every rugby club going
1: well, i obviously probably a little bit biased to answer this question. <laughs> um, but I do agree. and I think the amount of time that the players spend with their S&C coach is probably more than, than any other coach. So in terms of like a one-on-one um, relationship, although the coaches obviously spend a lot of time with the team and they review the sessions, I think the S&C coaches will end up spending significantly more time than other people with them. So the relationships are generally pretty strong. And it's something that, um, as a club, we think is important. It's something I've always thought is important. That If I've got a good relationship with a player, which doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be comfortable, but if I've got a good relationship with a player, then he's more likely to buy into what we want to try and achieve. But part of that comes from listening to the player as well and, and listening to him. and Even if you disagree, try and convince him in a really nice way that Maybe you should think of this. And um, Probably at the start of my career, I was a bit more dictatorial. I was uh, I was definitely harsher in my 20s. Definitely. And probably lost some players, actually, because I was too harsh. Some, some responded well and um, I had good relationships, but probably in hindsight, there would have been players who, who didn't like me and I probably didn't get the most out of them. And at the time, I might have said, yeah, well, you know, they don't push themselves or they're a waster or whatever it was. But in reflection, it was probably I wasn't finding a way to get the best out of them. Because as a as a coach, all the personalities you deal with are phenomenally different. So it's your job as a coach to find a way to get the best out of that player. That's, that's what you're employed to do. So understanding the player and making that relationship strong is going to have, give you a much better opportunity to get the outcome you want.
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the things you touched on there, and I'm I'm quoting all the previous podcast episodes, but it's because I've learned so much throughout them. And one of the things that stood out with me most of all is Richard Wigglesworth's comment about your environment that you create down there isn't something that would be for everyone. It's something that only the elite could live in. And it's something that you can easily get chewed up and spat out from. And that's something that you've touched on there because you talk about how those relationships don't always have to be comfortable or aren't always comfortable i wonder when you're creating those environments and you're talking about that kind of either give someone the stick or give someone the hug that pat talked about how do you create that relationship with them to try and judge that player to player basis
1: yeah it's it's not easy and you definitely don't always get it right i've definitely got it wrong a lot <laughs> um but as i say ultimately we're trying to get players to, to do things that we is right that's going to help them play so if you start with 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 that and you're honest with the players in terms of where you think they're at, then that's a good starting point to think of any relationship. And sometimes it's awkward to tell a player that you think he's not putting it in or he's too fat or his lifestyle's poor. And especially when your relationship's strong, sometimes it can be it can be harder tough to, to give yeah. bad news. Other may have always felt that um, you're doing it to be kind. You're not doing it to be mean. You're doing it because you're trying to help the person. You're not doing it to be mean to the person. So if I'm calling someone fat, I'm calling him fat because I think if he's leaner, he's going to um, be a better rugby player. So I am trying to help him. I don't necessarily say it like that, by the way. <laughs> no, of course. Um, or
0: sometimes sometimes you do.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes you say what you think is right in that moment to get a player motivated. And a, the motivation comes from him hating you and I'm working hard. Well, Sometimes that might be a good thing and if, 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 if not much skill is required in that moment so yeah sometimes you need to say what you think they need to hear
0: and that's and, coaching
1: yeah yeah and as I say some it's, it's hard to judge at times it's hard to get that balance right I suppose if you get it more right more often it's fine when you get it wrong the other time
0: yeah, it's, the, it's a hazard of the job, I think. But I suppose it leads nicely into the next part, which is the change in your role at Saris. And I have absolutely no capacity or no idea of what that role looks like before anyone <laughs> says, how do you know? But my perception of you is... From that those days back in the 20s and how I just knew you as a bloke is that you like being on the pitch and you like being in the gym and you like it being in with the boys and driving standards and working hard and sometimes even getting involved in sessions that was my me- that 's my memory of you like getting in the, in a fitness session and getting stuck in a younger me. A younger, I, a yo- me a younger you yeah for sure but With this change of role, to head of performance, have has that that I'm assuming that role shifted because now it seems like the role is more around managing staff. And is that something that frustrates you?
1: It it did initially. I found it very difficult initially. Even go back to that time where I transitioned out of Ulster. As I've got older, less so. I I touched on. We've got some phenomenal staff at the club. Um, I've a guy there who's my right hand man, Andy. who was young at the time and I, I would tell him he's getting old which he'll <laughs> like me saying um, but we've worked together now for, for, for nine years and as I've transitioned it's allowed him to transition as well so he's been able to take more responsibility which has made to me the department better and ultimately that's what we're here to do we're trying to make the team and the club as good as we can be so um, initially as I said the transition was, was difficult but now I would get lots satisfaction if I've had a positive impact on a staff member and if if Andy thinks I've helped him become a better s coach, that's as important to me now as what it did when I talked about Andrew Trimble playing for, for Ireland, so I still get enjoyment in that, I would still be um, heavily involved around all the planning, I know maybe not the detail of the sessions which Andy will, will run, because again relationships are really strong with him I would still be heavily involved in and all those discussions and, and the planning of the training week and how we run that. So I, I would say I'm still involved enough to satisfy that, and I'll still be heavily involved in making sure the players are hitting whatever physical targets need to be um, met. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have removed myself completely from, from the playing group. So if I think they need to hear from me, um, I'd be willing to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the competitive edge, and yeah, I can't imagine that's ever going to go fell <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it's just it's just in you or it's not. And I think the the interesting thing, moving slightly sideways from that, is the experience that you've had as a Irish head of fitness, and you, you're so you're controlling this body of clubs, which in, in as we know it is the provinces. And then your job is to make sure that the provinces are doing everything that you want them to be doing to make sure these this group of players are as fit as possible. Okay, And then we move across and you become the Sarri's head of performance, strength and conditioning coach in whatever role you want to talk about. You now have input from the RFU talking to how you want some of, well, you know, there's no doubt about it, like at least five or six of these high-quality Saracens players will be constantly discussed in these English RFU meetings about how conditioned they are or what they need to improve on. So having been on both sides of the table, how do you find that? And does it allow you to manage those situations better?
1: Well, I think so, but I suppose you need to ask the people who 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 deal with me. Um I I often think that again it's not it never needs to be as complicated as what um people make it. And I think it always comes down to relationships. So what you said there about a well-worked in Ireland, yes, as the head of fitness it was my overall responsibility, but I never saw it as me going into the provinces and telling them to do that. I went in to try to make my relationship with um, it was Jason and Aiden and JD at the time um, mm-hmm. as strong as it could be, and if my relationship with them strong, like I've never met an SNC coach who's went, you know what? I think I want my players to be fatter, slower, and less fit. Well, it's not something I've <laughs> heard a lot, to be honest, from an SNC coach. So generally, someone's going to be going, well, we want them all to be a bit stronger, a bit more powerful, a bit faster, a bit fitter. Either some of that or all of that. And and there may be variations in how someone goes about getting that. But the ultimate that, goal is 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 that. And if you actually remove, I don't know, ego from it and you go, Okay, well, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to make the player as good as it can be. Okay, well, what do we think this player needs? And there might be some differences about well, I think he needs to actually be a bit fitter, but more and then you can have a conversation if your relationship's strong with the SNC coach and come up with a, a decision. And I never, ever, ever had an incident where um, it became the standoff between us and them. And, and and I try to be like that when I if I'm ever working with the England staff or, or whoever it is. And and yes, we, we like have some small disagreements about maybe what a priority is, but it it's so minor in the greatest scheme of things that I don't I don't think it really matters that that much
0: yeah I just thought it was interesting because when you're when you're in charge of that that kind of whole provincial outlook it, the perception is that if Declan Kidney comes to you and says I want player X fitter because he's not fit enough you need to go and see what he's doing in his provinces because he's not doing enough when he comes into these Irish camps and then when you flip that and you become the head of the Saracens job and role and there's no doubt that all the Saris boys are incredibly well conditioned but when you have that input from an exterior body, just how you manage that because you've been on both sides of the table. But I think there's no doubt about it. Every strength and conditioner wants you as fit, fast and as lean as possible. But I do, and I am aware that there are different ways of doing it and there are different gym programs rocking around and there are different ways of doing a gym mixed in with skills whenever that might not agree with what you believe. Yes, I suppose that
1: is is true. And there'll be occasions where, especially around something like body fat or body weight, I don't necessarily believe that everyone needs to be bodybuilder lean to play rugby. So as a guiding principle, well, of course, if they have less fat mass, then in theory, they should be able to run around more because um, they're carrying less dead weight. But I, I, I don't really look at it like that. I sort of go, okay, is this person capable of carrying out the job that the coaches want them to do? So is his work rate, is his output in a game high enough? And if he's getting off the floor quick enough and making loads of tackles and carrying and he's effective in all those things, if his body fat's 2% higher, then what... Is, that, is, that, is, is the time invested in making that happen really going to make this player a better rugby player? Or is it going to piss him off more because he's unhappy? Because he's dieting and feeling miserable? And, yeah, um, so I always try and keep, keep that balance. So that, that would be more the areas of debate, more than actually... Listen. If someone wants to squat or trap bar deadlift or just I used to be a believer that if you didn't squat, you didn't Olympic lift, then there must be something wrong with you. You're clearly a weirdo if you don't squat and don't (laughs) Olympic lift. Um, But I was like, like looking back, was probably a little bit naive in me. And now (laughs) I, I would be a bit more relaxed about, I suppose, exercise selection in the program. That you just get what's right for that player. Again, to repeat myself as to what's going to give the ultimate outcome of him becoming a better rugby player. So I would be less fussy. so if they were in the England camp and did an, 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 a different exercise. It really bothered me if they get injured then it maybe becomes a conversation about well do you think this... Sh- but otherwise, outside that, um, I wouldn't have huge amount of issues with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's class. I think it's just a really interesting angle that most people won't have considered. So... Okay, so the last part, Phil, that we're going to try and cover before I leave you alone is we're actually going to discuss the ins and outs of some of the players that you've worked with because you've already named a few of who are unbelievable athletes. And one of the people that I think you've seen a massive shift in his performance due to conditioning, having played against, unfortunately, and watched playing is Will Skelton. And there's been a huge shift in the way that he's moving and performing based off the way he's, I'm assuming he's being conditioned or the work that you guys as a team have done with him. So discussing Will first and then off the back of that, is there any are there any other players that stand out as people who've shifted physically to massively improve their, their rugby performance that stand out?
1: I suppose Will, um, to talk about him specifically first, firstly, no matter how good your programme is, no matter how good your nutrition advice is, it almost doesn't matter unless the player wants to do it. So I, when people have asked me about Will over the years about the in and Will decided to make the change. It yeah. wasn't anything I said or Andy said. Um, Will decided he wanted to be better. Now, whether that was a case of because it was the environment we created or because of his teammates and not like there's an argument there to say that because he loved the culture, loved the people and had a good relationship with us, that was a driver for him. But ultimately he made the decision that he wanted to change. So first, I, I, I would credit Will with it. Yeah, made huge changes to his nutrition program. I would say that was the uh, the biggest thing. He actually was always a hard worker, Um he came in and worked hard. He's a great bloke, but he made huge changes to his nutrition program. But not like when you read like the science of nutrition, it becomes really complicated. Uh, if any SNC coaches and nutritionists listen to this, they're going to be disgusted. But it was basically. It was basically, listen, eat what you want, but just control your calories. <laughs> so I wouldn't take this with every, take this method with, with everyone, but that was basically it. He, and it wasn't quite as extreme. that he didn't just go and eat a pizza and then didn't eat anything no. the other. But, but that was a basic premise that if he wanted to have a piece of bread or a bit of cake or a chocolate bar because it made him feel good, have it. Think about what time you might have it at in the day. And think about what implications that might mean for what you eat the rest of the day but it was sort of as simple as that and 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 he then tracked that and logged that and was phenomenal in terms of the amount of weight I think officially it was maybe 19 or 20 kilos he, he lost over a period of time and then the condition but as I said um, he works with Andy very closely in terms of his, his program and would maybe do a bit more circuit-based training than general strength training because he's 140 kilos and really strong anyway. And that gave a bit more of a, a, a metabolic effect and burnt a few more calories. So, again, it was sort of sciencey, but, but I, w- I wouldn't say it was buried in science. Um, mm-hmm. But it was more his attitude and his desire to do it, which I think is the case for any player. I used to say, if you've got the best program in the world and people don't try, well, they're not going to get better. And if you've got a rubbish program, like it could be an average program and someone puts everything into it, but they're more likely to get better than the person on the brilliant program who doesn't try. So yes, the quality of the program is important, but the effort of the player and the player taking responsibility for what he wants to achieve in a sport is actually going to be the thing that makes the difference. So yeah, so for, so I said I would credit Will with the chain team in, and yes, he... He was a lot leaner and a lot fitter and his output around the park, I think, was obvious for most people who watched um, the last couple of seasons. Um, Horrid,
0: horrid person to play against. (laughs) Horrid person to play against.
1: He he comes across as mean on the pitch too, but he's actually a a great great guy. He's actually been brilliant for our culture and environment, I must say. I I think he's been one of the best signs we've had in terms of the group. Yeah, in
0: terms of other people... Okay, can I, before you go, can I kind of flip this a wee bit then? Have a think about players that have done that, but also maybe, and I don't know if this is discussable or not, but what interests me is maybe a player who wasn't blessed with the same physical attributes that Will Skelton was, but had to almost mould himself into being a considerably better athlete to match his already really good rugby ability. So in terms of other
1: players, uh, you would have likes of... And I, don't, I don't think he would mind me saying like a George Cruz, who wouldn't necessarily, if you saw pictures of George Cruz from 2011, if you, if you Google him, it would be an interesting one to Google if anyone's listening to this. He, he wasn't particularly big or strong or powerful. He's a big old rig now, though. Yeah, yeah, he is. And and he worked incredibly hard at his conditioning. Um, actually phenomenally fit. Um, and how much effort he put into that over the years and how hard he works and how diligent he is so you wouldn't necessarily say huh, he's killing me he's the best athlete now <laughs> but he he made huge strides i think the lads telling me he was like 99 kilos when he was um wow. when he was like 20 and starting to play he was so so light and he put on 17 or 18 kilos of 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 mass to play
0: see i think sometimes that's arguably more impressive though because there's a very clear rugby ability, and then there's almost a you know, uh, I'm not going to speak for George, but in this circumstance, like a, a lack of physical ability, which he clearly didn't have, but which you, to almost level up to get to where your rugby ability is can be the difference between some players making it and not.
1: I, I agree with that. I must say, some of my, the, the, the most favorite players I've had to work with have been the ones who weren't necessarily genetic freaks. Will Fraser actually is another one. Yes, so Will Fraser. Um, I remember meeting Will, and actually not particularly strong, and not particularly fit, and not particularly fast. But he went on to be a big part of the year that we won the double. Sadly, he had to retire um, with injury. But he he worked incredibly hard, like tough. He was tough in terms of what he was able to push himself through to make the most of what he had, because he would tell himself compared to. Amaro or um, someone like that, he wouldn't have had that um, genetic potential.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, in an effort to round it off and leave you alone, I'm going to ask you for kind of from your whole period of coaching um, in the physical aspect – who, who the, the people are that stand out in certain areas and I'm talking like back from the engine that was Nigel Brady who I used to try and chase in fitness tests and was fit as anything to so the guys that you work with now. Let's start off with who comes across as probably one of the most fit players you ever worked with. Someone who would like complete a, a bleep test or the James Milner of the Liverpool who they talk about having to turn off the stereo because he's completed the bleep.
1: Yeah, I, I must say I've been phenomenally Um, lucky over the years to have quite a few players like that so Ron Lagarde was unbelievably fit back in back in Ireland but at the club that we've had over the last few years genuinely we've had some of the fittest people that I've ever seen so you would have had Chris Ashton who's probably well known for being um, well amongst other things very fit Um, (laughs) you've got uh, we have a guy Duncan Taylor um, Scottish international, who's actually a freak. Do
0: you know? Uh, do you know Nick Tompkins talked about him, and he talked about how we discussed the the efforts that you have to go to when you're a young guy to catch up with the guys who are really good. And he referred to Duncan Taylor as someone who would have a crazy amount of involvements in consecutive motions. Yeah, remarkable for someone who
1: doesn't necessarily look like the best athlete. Um, he th- yeah, he, he his output's sensational. And then we've got, there's a few others. Goody is unbelievably fit, uh, conditioning. And then the, both are scrum halves, actually. Um, so when I joined the club, was a guy, Wiggy, who, you, who you've spoken to, yeah. fit and still unbelievably fit and in phenomenal shape for his, not even for his age, he's in phenomenal shape. And then with a guy Neil Lecoq, you remember Neil yes. the
0: cock somehow. used to wear the forearm guard?
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness mate. Running was effortless to him. It uh, must be nice. So he, I remember when I first came over, and I used to still do some sessions, thinking to myself, I'd run with this guy. I'm thinking, <laughs> this was a rubbish idea. <laughs> um, okay.
0: Yeah, you're getting left behind. Okay, and then the other one is for absolute out and out speed. And you can't pick JD because we know JD was fast. You pick anyone that you've worked across, maybe two players who you think come across as absolute speed from zero to 10 or 30.
1: Do you know, I don't think I've ever had someone who's like Christian Wade quick. I, I, I mean, I, there's no one in my head jumping out who I would go, he's phenomenal. I've had quick players. Like Andrew Trimble was quick over 10, 10 metres.
0: He took a but, bit to get going though as well.
1: Yeah, at the club, we, we have a guy, um, Rotty Sagun, a young guy, who, who who's, who's who's sharp. Um, there's a guy, Ali Crosdale, again, a young guy at the club yeah. who's who's actually very quick, I would say. He's probably the quickest that we've got. But outside that, some of the better players that we have had, especially back three, I wouldn't say they've been... Rap- like, Ashley's quick, but he wasn't like rapid. Chris Wiles was a great rugby player. Um, and then you've got <laughs> Goody again. So, so yeah, I, I, I don't think we've had anyone who's been, I would say, electric, apart from these young guys coming through at the club. The, the, the one thing, the, the most impressive two people in terms of speed weren't necessarily the fastest, but it was two that I've already mentioned, in David Wallace and Stephen Ferris. Stephen Ferris was as quick as Andrew Trimble, but he was 116 kilos. Um, and David Wallace was as quick as anyone we had over 10 metres um, so I, I would say those players probably impressed me the most in terms of the speed
0: yep that's the sort of thing we're after and then rounding it off we're talking about out and out strength in whatever capacity you think is most important whether it's a clean whether it's just a box squad a, a free squad a, a bench press a chin someone because I have my own one and I remember being coming over to England from Ireland and Always been strong in Ireland, but then I saw B Allo who plays for Wasps now, doing a two hundred yeah, doing a two hundred and twenty kilo bench press, and there were boys box squatting the same beside him, and I was like that, couldn't believe it. So, someone that comes across like that, who you think like just out and out strength, impressive.
1: Do you remember um, uh, Tom Court used to play for Ulster?
0: Yes, I know um, well.
1: Well, he 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 had a phenomenally strong squat and clean, actually. I think he cleaned like 190 or something, which for a rugby player, a uh, weightlifter might not be impressed, but for a rugby player, it was, it was a decent load. And he squatted 320, free squat below parallel. Again, probably not impressive as a power lifter, but, but strong. And then you would have like Keen Healy. Yeah. He, he, he He's all round, very strong. And there were people who had a few of the club. Mark Marrow's a strong guy. Billy and Macker are both strong in their lower bodies. Um, so. Maro's actually got a very impressive pulling strength, so he he he's uh, he's got big numbers in it.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting to hear the kind of because the career you've had. There's there's so many players that come into it. I think, for in fairness, those two like Ferris and Wallace just stand out for me. Growing up, seeing those guys, and then seeing Ferris first hand was a thing that used to give me nightmares until I got a bit older. Um, but listen, Phil, thank you so much for your time. I think it's. I really appreciate you jumping on and having a chat about your career and the influence that you've had on loads of clubs and loads of teams more importantly and I think it's been really interesting to get your insight from that kind of head of performance view back to the very early days whenever you just started off and Julie put your CV in to get you a job and I think it's an incredible journey so look at all the best to you and Julie and the two kids and thank you so much for jumping on.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for tuning in guys and a huge thank you to Phil for giving up his time and giving some honest insight into the players he's worked with and his experiences he's had. Thanks to VVS for being on board for another episode and don't miss the opportunity to win a free belt on social media platforms. That's at Van Smith on Instagram to be in with a shot. Thanks for your ongoing support and thanks for listening. I'm Niall Annett and you've been listening to Wind Your Neck In. Cheers, man.